Hello folks, welcome back. I'm your host Simon Wood and this is the High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast where I can promise that you'll always hear a Yorkshire accent and we'll never have any adverts. We chat with our guests about peak performance, fitness, health, nutrition, recovery, longevity, relationships and happiness because it doesn't matter whether you want to finish your first triathlon, set a PB at your next race or just keep turning up until you're in your 70s. Each of these elements has real significance. Today's guest is a member of my SWAT tribe, Mr. Pete McCarthy. Pete is head of the Human Factors Department at Cathay Pacific Airline, and we're going to chat about how they utilize science around performance, both physiological and psychological, to keep their pilots and flight crew performing at their best. We talk about how they work around jet lag and the loss of sleep, as well as being positive in both physical and mental health, and how to shift from a focus on negative performance to a positive environment, something you might like to think about in reflection of your race results. It's a fascinating conversation, and I'm pretty sure that you'll find some nuggets in there to help improve your performance. By the way, talking of performance, if you've ever thought about entering an Ironman, you might be interested in a two-page case study I've written outlining the simple formula I've used to help hundreds of people just like you to excel at their first long distance event. You can get your copy by clicking on the very obvious link in the show notes. Okay, let's get on and start chatting with Pete. Oh, welcome to the show, Pete McCarthy. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm a huge fan of the podcast, so it was great when I got the invite and then I'm really, really chuffed to be on the team. Well, you're most welcome, and I think you were our first guest to be calling us from Hong Kong, so that's good. We normally have them from the west coast of America, so it's a morning call for them and an evening call for me. Uh, it's different now, isn't it? It's lunchtime for me and uh, afternoon it's for you. evening for me. Evening yeah. for you, yeah. 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 So it's, okay. it's been a fantastic day, though, here in Hong Kong, so the sun's just going down. Yeah, well, it's looking like it's going to be the same. We're getting we're getting into a touch of warmer weather again here, and uh, yeah, it's just right. It's not been particularly summer-like for the last few days. Um, so, Pete, uh, you're part of my SWAT team. Um, you joined us recently, but um, you have a very interesting occupation and one, one which touches on a lot of the things that I have been talking about with our SWAT members and our email group recently. And that, um, So why don't you tell people what you do um, as your job now um, and yeah. a sort of brief overview of what that encompasses. And then we'll talk about how you got to that point where you started off and uh, and the, the many turns you've taken to get you to where you are now. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, my job role is I'm the head of human factors uh, for the Cafe Pacific group of airlines. Uh, so there's three airlines which make up that group, including Cafe Pacific. Uh, and specifically, I'm an aviation psychology and human factors specialist. My main role is to work with people like pilots who fulfill a safety critical role and find ways to help them operate effectively and safely. So this human factors basically is a scientific approach that we use to gain an understanding of how humans interact with their surroundings, but also it includes things like well-being uh, to, to make sure they are functioning as safely and efficiently as they possibly can be. Mm. And the reason why that is of so much interest to me, and I hope to our listeners, is because um, one of the big things that I've been talking about recently is sleep. Um, it's 
it saddens me. But then I, th- I guess that I'm like a convert. So I'm like a, I'm like a reformed smoker who's saddened by all the people who are still smoking. But I guess I used to marginalise sleep, thinking, well, you know, there's only 24 hours in the day, so if I cut back on sleep, I can get more done. But of course, yeah. as we both know, and I hope that listeners are starting to learn that that's actually a, a fool's errand, really, isn't it? it it's um, you don't get more done. You end up being more busy, um, but you're not necessarily more productive but there are so many other issues with not sleeping um and i guess if you're working in front of a computer it's not that critical to life but if you're flying an airplane and you've got 300 people sitting behind you actually it's very critical yeah absolutely it's one of the things that we take most seriously with regard to performance and safety with our pilots you know and so much so and i mentioned to you before you know there's a whole legal framework around how we manage our pilots sleep mm. and how they you know, have to take accountability also for managing their sleep. But the, I think when you talk to the pilots and most of them are, are really good at doing this, uh, they understand why it's so important. And they also then take that into the, to other parts of their life. So other hobbies they do and other activities they do, mm. they understand how beneficial this routine and this sleep is to that too. Well, I am st- studying sleep at the moment. I just, uh, and I, I, yeah, uh... I downloaded some stuff yesterday that talks about, uh, and I can make anybody who, who is sort of thinking, well, I'm not sure about whether that's true or not. I've got the research data and I can refer them to the, the papers where these um, these things have come from. But sleeping longer in particular seems to be most important. For instance, after a period of sleeping as much as 10 hours per night, high-level collegiate athletes reported improvements such as improved sprint times, decreased reaction times, right? Yeah which is important if you're flying a plane. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to have an extended reaction time to situations. Um, if they're basketball players, better three throw, free throw percentages. And I know that the NBA have shown that as well in players that have traveled from the West Coast to the East Coast, where there's a time zone change. That they're, um, I think that was data that Whoop did, that, that free throw percentages were down, increased three shot percentages. But things like improved ratings of subjective medical and uh, physical and mental well-being and for triathletes might be interesting new personal record times for competitive swimmers or more sleep sleep loss if it's chronic can make it harder to learn new skills so you know if you're going swimming early in the morning and you're trying to learn how to do that new swim drill and you just can't get it maybe that's why errors in physical and mental performance so what you're talking about decreased neuroplasticity so that's back to learning an increase in autonomic response similar to overtraining or overreaching. So, uh, you know, feeling fatigue, not recovering from stuff, increased inflammation, fatigue, and our perception of pain. So sore muscles, um, taking longer to recover from races, but also that inflammation extends to things like the vital organs. And if you've got inflammation around the heart, um, then we know how, uh, how much of an issue that can be, particularly in athletes. Impair our exercise capacity, including aerobic and anaerobic power. Decrease our recovery from that exercise, including less muscle protein synthesis. Increase our risk-taking and impulsivity. Now, that's a huge one for yeah. pilots, isn't it? Yeah, but also, if you're, also, if you're cycling, you, you know, when you're coming up to a junction, you're coming up to a set of traffic lights and you think it's an orange, I can sprint across there, or you're going down a descent and you're thinking, yeah, I'll try and keep up with those fast guys. If you're tired, you might be more likely to take a risk, um, which, which has yeah. consequences. So... You know, these are important things. Slowed reaction times, decreased sense of humor, making us grumpier and moodier. If you yeah. if you notice that when you're training hard, maybe that's because you're not getting enough sleep. Lowered motivation, altered hormonal function, weakened immunity, i.e. you're going to get ill more. 
impair digestion, decrease leptin and increase ghrelin, which means more hunger and appetite and cravings. So if you're making bad food decisions when you've not been sleeping. Now, the reason I'm, you know, you know all this, Pete, but and the reason I'm emphasizing them is that I think it's sleep is something that's thrown away far too easily. Mm. It's, you know, we look for the gadgets that are going to help us improve in everything we want to do in life, including losing weight, getting a six pack, being a faster runner or, you know, having more children or getting promoted at work. And yet, actually, if we slept more, we'd probably be more likely to get all of those things. Yeah, and absolutely. We're, and we're going to talk about it in this context, because these are the things that you've found have been relevant in some of the accidents that you've investigated and some of yeah. the things that are really important for people, you know, so next time all of us get on the plane, we know that the pilots are going to be in, you know, in control and in um, thinking straight. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, the, the, the sleep on the, and the list you, um, you went through there, you know, we can go on and on with that list because it mm. is, there's just so much that relies on us having a good night's sleep. And there was a few there that as you went through that I'd, I'd like to pick on as well for us as triathletes. You mentioned increased risk taking, which clearly is is an issue. Um, but also this this impaired situational awareness. We we lose almost lose track of what's going on around us, which clearly then may put us in a, a position to come to harm. And there's also this increased chance of of error. So just generally making a mistake. So again, for those who are out to to do a personal best or or to to win the race, you've got more chance of of of, of doing an error if you haven't uh, had a good night's sleep. So let alone all the other things that, that go with it. So a massive amount rides on this. Well, and we can talk about, when we talk about errors, um, we should also talk about checklists um, because uh, I was writing about checklists recently and uh, I was aware over the last weekend, there's, there's quite a lot of events going on now. Uh, two people that were both doing the same event independently told me that one thing they hadn't checked for whatever reason on the list of instructions was the cutoffs on this bike section. And so there they were taking the time at the feed stations, you know, having a cup of tea, getting some more stuff. So it was a bike sportive as part of a three day event. And then they missed the cutoff on the bike. So they weren't allowed to complete the next day. And they were like totally unaware. Um, and yeah. then um, I talked about it in a previous podcast with the grumpy old coaches, one of the guys who's been doing triathlon as long as me. And so probably should know better went to a, went to an event and forgot his back wheel yeah, because yeah. because he doesn't use a checklist, yeah, right? I had yeah. a bit of a debate with somebody who said, I never use them. And I said, have you ever forgotten anything? And she said, no. I said, how would you feel if you got on a plane with the pilot who said, we're not doing, we're not bothering with a checklist because we did it yesterday and everything was fine. And she said, oh yeah, but he's got people's lives in their hands. I'm like, oh, okay then. So, so it doesn't matter about going to your race and forgetting something as long as the pilot remembers that he's got 300 lives he's responsible for. Yeah. Um, checklist. And is it, I mean, you mentioned about pilots using them. You know, we, we rely heavily on checklists um, because somebody's done the hard work for you. You know, somebody's taken the time to sit down and work out exactly what needs doing, what needs doing when, what you need to do that. And they presented it to you so that it sort of allows you not to have to use all that cognitive capacity to work that out because somebody's done it for you so again why wouldn't you make use of that it's, mm. a, it's a great thing and i mean the thing is as well you know i've got checklists for going on holiday i've got checklists for going to races for going camping yeah. for doing this and that and the other for when i'm commentating i've got a little go bag and i've got a little checklist and i just run through it 
it, it only requires a tick in the box. You don't have to yeah. rewrite that list every time. You just have to check, have I got that? Have I not got it? It's fairly binary, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, no, I swear by them, I must admit, yeah. And I, I have a client, I have I have several clients um, that I'm coaching who are in the medical profession, and we talked about, you know, the checklists that they use when they're before and after they've done operations, and um, one of them was saying that that all came from the, the airline industry, so it then went yeah. down to the which seems sort of strange that, you know, when you've got all of these scalpels and things that you wouldn't sort of have a, well, we had five to start with. Have we still got five? Yeah, yeah. but they've embraced it. You know, I, I've been involved with some of that, you know, bringing what we do in aviation over to the medical world, and they've absolutely embraced it. You know, they see the value of it. And, and you know, it doesn't, not everything works for them that we do, and there's stuff that they do, which actually would really help us if we if mm-hmm. we implemented it. But a lot of things like checklists, et cetera, then mm-hmm. you know, that, that this is where it came from. Mm. so let's let's talk about how you got to this point Pete, in in your job yeah. we'll, we'll also yeah. talk about how you got into triathlon because that's sort of where all yeah. this stuff joins together and becomes more relevant so yeah. t- t- no, take agree. us through your take us through your professional life first excellent so um so i joined the army uh, straight from school and uh, i had to join the army because both my older brothers were in the army so i definitely had to follow uh, where they went so and I think the army gave me the opportunity or the forces in general give people the opportunity to develop and really allowed me to sort of explore my potential. So I finished my training in the army and the first place I was sent to was uh, Germany. And this was in the uh, sort of mid 80s, early mid 80s. Got to Germany uh, and on the, the base where I was uh, posted, there was a, an army helicopter unit. Now, who knew the army had helicopters? Because I didn't. Okay, I didn't have a clue that the army had helicopters. Uh, and I was watching as over time, over sort of six or seven months, watching these guys uh, operating these helicopters on the base, thinking that job looks far more interesting and glamorous uh, than, the, than the, the job I'm doing. So I did a bit of research and uh, I went and found out what you needed to do in order to apply uh, to, to, to transfer from one sort of branch to another, but also then what you needed to do to be a pilot. And, and thankfully, once I was able uh, to apply, I, I did apply for pilot selection. Now, selection is quite difficult. You, know, you have to jump through a, a number of hoops, clearly. Uh, but once you get on there and once you're loaded onto the pilot's course, that's when you, you know the, the, the new life of, of aviation in the Army really starts. And it's an absolutely fascinating and fantastic job, uh, which I would not swap for the world. You know, I was lucky enough to spend 25 years flying helicopters. I flew helicopters on uh, operations, so you know, in uh, conflict zones like Bosnia, Kosovo, Afghanistan, you know, and I've also sadly, on the other side of it, from through my academic side, investigated accidents with aircraft and helicopters in USA, UK, Afghanistan, Iraq, you know, all, all of these places. So it's been a very um, varied career. But the flying, so 25 years of flying, led me really to also start to get into psychology and human performance i wanted to understand more about these pilots that, that i was working with i like the idea of helicopters one of my one of my friends used to have one he used to land at his field and he took us out in it and i thought it was really cool um and then uh, um several of my other friends went yeah but you know if if it goes wrong with a helicopter that's that's it really isn't it you can't glide down like you can with a plane and uh, oh i wouldn't trust a helicopter you know i'm not getting in one of those um 
is it is it is it all mythology that are they fairly safe or uh, and, oh, and are the mo- most of the accidents down to human error well that, that, i mean there's a really great point that you raised there and that that kind of comes to where i i i came onto the scene uh, with regard to the job i do now but Helicopters are absolutely safe, especially the, the the sort of machines that the military fly. They're you know very high powered, well equipped, uh, very well maintained, uh, and they're flown by people who are very very well trained. So, uh, and with regards to the um, you can't glide or you can't, we do basically glide in a helicopter. So when the when the engines fail, we do this thing called auto rotation. You know, so we configure the aircraft so that we without any engine power, we can still get down to the ground and actually you know, and land hopefully in one piece and mostly in one piece mm. uh, which is always a, a good landing if you you can walk away from it so mm. yeah. Um, yeah so the human error bit and the you know the, the the human influence over time that has clearly become come to the fore because in the early days of aviation you know a lot of the accidents and incidents were the focus was always on the technology because it was very immature Whereas now the technology and the automation has come on clearly leaps and bounds. So the focus has shifted more to the human and the understanding of the human when we have an accident or an incident. And that's where I come in, really. So uh, I got interested in that side of it in the early 90s, sadly, following some fatal accidents with people I knew. Uh, And I knew, as I said, these people are well trained. The aircraft are well maintained. There was no bad weather. There was no enemy fire. You know, and but this person was involved in a, in a in a fatal accident. So I then went on to start to study, you know, psychology, uh, human factors, human performance, and and basically I've been doing that ever since. So I started that in the mid nineties, and you know, every day is a school day as far as I'm concerned. So I I continue even now uh, to yeah. study uh, in that field. Yeah. Do you do you find that your professional life becomes uh, sort of a bit irritating to other people because I guess outside of um, what you do in the aviation industry, you can analyze all sorts of incidents that happen in normal life and, and probably pin most of them down to poor decision-making, can't you? Like Even like somebody somebody trying to slice an avocado stone out of the thing and cut in the hand and you go, yeah, but you were tired and you were using the knife badly and that like poor decision. <laughs> yeah, what's, what's really interesting, and th- again, how things have changed. So in the, in the early days of the science of human factors, and human factors is, is really looking at humans who are in complex systems you now humans like so you know your surgeon in, in the nhs your pilot in a in an aircraft your person looking after the displays in a nuclear power station you know we're trying to understand how those people operate and, and what they do and in the early days of, of human factors the, the human was always seen as the weak link you know, they were the the, the 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 thing that needed to be controlled or could be replaced by technology whereas what we do now is actually we've almost turned that on its head and we say, no, you know what? The human is the strong link. It's the human in the system that is adaptable, that can vary their performance to make the system mm-hmm. work. You know, all of the things that on a day-to-day, they can they can make all the trade-offs each day that actually makes the system work. So what we try and understand now is not necessarily what goes wrong with the human, but more about what goes right. And again, mm-hmm. that, I think that's a great thing for triathlon and, and for sport. You know, let's, you know, let's look at our, when we finish our race, instead of worrying about that thing that, you know, didn't quite go as we planned it to go or mm. didn't quite get the time we wanted to go. What about the 98% of things that went right? So why don't we focus a bit more on that and try and understand that? Well, that is one of the things that as coaches, we try to get people to do. I mean, the first thing is don't, don't make, don't do this reflection in the heat of the moment, you know, just after you finished when, when all the emotions are high, 
rest and do it in the cold light of day when, you, when you're less emotional, then start off by the things that went right. What went well? What did I do really well? Well, you got to the finish line, so that's pretty good, isn't it? You know, uh, um, and then and then after you've identified three or four things that you went well, what well, what what do you th- not what went badly, but what could I do better next time? Because invariably things don't go um, occasionally to go badly, but generally most of it's about what could I do better next time. Yeah, I mean, we still we still learn. We still need to learn from those things. Mm. That, that, that sure. go wrong but they shouldn't be the they shouldn't be the sole focus of everything we're trying to understand because actually they don't go wrong that much and, and no. thinking in, in in jobs like mine it very rarely goes wrong thankfully you know so you know 98% of everything we do goes it might not go as planned but it goes safely it, you know people get from a to b safely with everything they need you know so if we only if we only looked at the 2% of the time it doesn't go right then we would, you know, we wouldn't be learning a huge amount. So what we do is we try and focus as well on the ninety-eight percent of the time that it goes well. But reflect, reflection's a great thing, isn't it? And and um, I think that's the best way for us all to learn is by reflecting on that and and getting reflections yeah. from other people as well, not just doing our own self-reflection. But yeah. I don't know, do you do that three sixty-degree reflection where you have feedback from? The, the co-pilot and from other people that are involved in the process as well, so that they can give their perspective. Yeah, we do. We we call we've introduced a, a concept called the operational learning review, which is based on on exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. And we get all the crew in, uh, and we get them to basically tell their story. Of of you know, I have this thing where I say to some of our pilots, "Oh, you've just come back from New York, and nothing happened. Can we go and talk about it?" Because mm-hmm. if in their mind nothing happened, in my mind loads happened because they managed all the ambiguity, they managed all the trade-offs, they managed any of the technical faults or any unruly passengers or you know, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. So, but in their mind, they've just done their job. Mm-hmm. But to my, in my mind, that's huge because we can learn from how you did all those things and, mm-hmm. and, you know, and we can share that with other people. So uh, yeah, so it's a, it's a similar concept. And this reflection is, you know, is also is, relies heavily on trust. You know, they, they've got to be able to trust the system and trust this, the, you know, the, the, the organization that they can speak freely and speak openly and tell their story. And, and I think they do. And most pilots do. Mm. Okay. So you, you've been flying a plane or you've been flying a helicopter, you've been flying a, uh, an aviation um, <laughs> machine. Do you ever do any, do, do you ever, did you ever fly planes at all? We had to learn to fly planes first. So as part of the selection, uh, you learn to fly an airplane first. So you do about, Altogether, probably about fifty hours uh, mm-hmm. flying an aeroplane, and then once you once you've done that and, and you've done that satisfactory, then you go on to helicopters. So, right, and, then, and I, I've not flown an aeroplane since. I'm, right, do you do you still maintain a helicopter pilot's license? Then no, 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 no. My feet, feet are firmly on the ground now. And what's the reason for that? Just lack of time or funds or? Uh, well, because I've become so so engrossed with my life since. So I went right, on right. from from flying helicopters. I I. As I said, I started studying psychology and human factors in the mid-90s. And about 10 years later, or maybe 13 years later, I had the opportunity to really put my academic knowledge now, my psychology and human factors, plus my applied flying knowledge, but put them together and work as a, as a human factor specialist and then an air accident investigator. Mm. So I was based with the military air accident investigation branch uh, at Farnborough, which is where the UK air accident investigation branches so we worked alongside our our civilian colleagues uh, and I did um, about three years 
as an active uh, air accident investigator. So, so around the world, um, investigating accidents with with both manned and unmanned aircraft, which was very interesting. So, I I went off to some of the uh, places like Afghanistan to look at where some of our unmanned aircraft systems had had, had accidents too. So, yeah, fascinating time. Mm. Any surprises when you were doing that work, and any commonalities between a lot of those incidents? Well, the one really interesting eye-opener for me was actually the remote, you know, people say, well, hang on, if it's unmanned, why are you going to look at this uh, particular accident? Because, again, it's more about the science and the human factors. So the big thing I got into there what really was this thing of remoteness. So if you don't share the fate with the, the, the aircraft, do you have the same awareness and do you make the decisions and problems, solve problems to the same extent? So if you're sat in the front of an aircraft and it's going wrong, you're invested in that you know you've got a shared fate with it so therefore you're gonna you're gonna really do your best to to resolve any issues you know my my study really was well these people are 100 miles away and now operating this remote system that's having problems do they do they have the same sort of cognitive uh outlook uh, in solving any issue with it which was fascinating absolutely fascinating so you do you do the accident investigation stuff um, and then, like you say, you get into the human factors. So did that re- did that involve more study on your behalf to to um, do yeah. that sort of psychology element? Yeah. So I, as part of qualifying as an accident investigator, I, I went to Cranfield University, and uh, Cranfield is a university. Uh, Cranfield University is just outside Bedford, or sort of halfway between Bedford and Milton Keynes, and it's a, a postgraduate only university, but they are absolute experts in human factors and safety and accident investigation. So as part of my training to become an accident investigator, I had to go and do their long course, their, their six-week course. Um, and I was absolutely, that, that was it. You know, I'd found the place I needed to be uh, mm-hmm. when I was in that academic environment learning about accident investigation. So I did, um, I stayed on and carried on my study with them while I was then also an active uh, investigator. Wind the clock forward three years and I get a, uh, I got a call from, um, the professor at Cranfield, he said, look, you know, uh, how would you uh, or what would you think about or would you consider coming to join the team here at the university uh, as an academic now teaching people how to investigate accidents and teaching people about human factors? So uh, that was my next step. I left the military uh, and I went to be an academic at Cranfield University. And I spent five fabulous years there um, teaching people about human factors and teaching people uh, about accident investigation. Mm. And then on to Cathay, I guess. Yeah. So uh, that, again, very interesting. I was doing. <laughs> I was asked by the university to come out to Hong Kong to, to do a bit of a study with uh, one of the helicopter operators here, but then also to do some um, accident investigation training with some of the airlines. Uh, and I, I, over a year, was coming backwards and forwards. Uh, and on my last trip, um, the they were advertising for a brand new post. Uh, for this head of group human factors for the group of cafe airlines Uh, so while i was here i inquired about it and uh, i went and i had my interviews and and thankfully i i got the job and have not looked back you know i've been here now three years it's a fabulous place to live cafe pacific is a fabulous airline uh to work for so again i you know i've had so much luck really from from the day i joined the army you know straight from school all the way through a flying career, all the way through academic, you know, through accident investigation and now into to the role I'm in now. I, I, I feel absolutely blessed that, um, that it's, that it's taken the route it has. 
Well, you know what Gary Player said, the harder I work, the luckier I get. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I'm sure, I'm sure there's an element of that. But, you have yeah. to you have to be in you have to put yourself in the right positions, don't you? Whether you're in sport or whether you're in business. You know, you have to if you never go out and you never shake hands with people and sit and have a chat with them, you never you never build your network and those opportunities don't often come your way. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, talk about your uh, talk about how you got into triathlon then, because it sounds like you've had a pretty busy life to this point. I wouldn't yeah. have thought there was a great deal of time left for swimming, biking, and running. Yeah, yeah, and and well, the, I was as I said, I was in the army, so I spent thirty two years in the army, uh, twenty five of those years flying helicopters, and clearly to be in the army, you have to maintain a level of fitness. So there was always some sport uh, involved. Swimming was my main thing as a kid. You know, I was always a swimmer. Uh, I, I, I don't think I'd, I'd ever touched a bike until I started triathlon, but swimming was always uh, my main thing. So um, I'd always been interested in swimming. I had to run because I was in the army. So there was always this thing about, you know, th- these are things that I like doing. Now, sadly, uh, my, the reason I, I took up triathlon was uh, following the death of my daughter. So um, my daughter, as a young adult, Sadly, went to bed one night and, and didn't wake up the next morning. And clearly that knocked us all for six as a, as a family that clearly devastated us. Um, and we wanted to know more about what had happened. We wanted to really understand uh, why Amanda had 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 this cardiac uh, event during the night and had not woken up. And thankfully, we were put in touch with uh, a a guy called uh, Professor Sanjay Sharma, uh, who is uh, probably the lead mm-hmm. cardiac uh, specialist in the world with regard to young adults or, and children who have cardiac events. And he also then uh, helps with a, a charity called Cardiac Risk in the Young, so CRY. Um, so we got in touch with CRY uh, and we got in touch with Professor Sharma and basically they just couldn't look after us enough. You know, they were such a good support to me and to the, to my wife and to my kids, uh, to my other my other children. Uh, and I just wanted to give something back. So basically, um, I took up endurance sport and I then took up triathlon. So I first of all, I did you know a couple of London marathons to try and raise awareness and, and raise some funds for cardiac risk in the young. Uh, I then uh, did Land's Enter John O'Groats, again, you know, shaking a bucket and wearing all the cardiac risk in the young stuff as we we went. Um, And then I tried triathlon and I'd I'd never even looked at triathlon before. And I thought, well, I need to try something different. I need to get out of my comfort zone. And like I say, I'd never really ridden a bike apart from, you know, a a chopper or whatever it was, (laughs) or a grifter as a a kid. Mm. Um, So now I I thought, well, I'll give this triathlon a, a go. And I started off. I'm sure as, as others do with uh, a few local sprint triathlons and then some more sort of high profile Olympic distance and then onto middle distance. And I've never progressed beyond middle distance because of, you know, the, for, for all sorts of reasons. I, 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 I love triathlon and I really do um, get so much from it and have had so much, or it's given me so much and it's allowed me to promote cardiac risk in the young and, and those things in the early days that I think I've just found my balance now. I don't need to do anything else. Yeah, I love middle distance. Uh, yeah, so that's that, that's pretty much where I'm stuck. Well, I've got I've got news for you there on your development as an athlete, Pete, because when we used to run the Talent ID programme in Yorkshire, we were looking for 
for young kids that could swim and run. We were never really interested in their biking skills because we um, had this notion that if they could swim, they developed a good engine. They did do a lot of volume as, as young swimmers. You know, it'd have to be a good swimmer. We're not talking about somebody who was in the school team. We're talking about somebody who swam regularly in a club. So you've got six or seven sessions a week. So you're building a big engine without a lot of um, stress on the body. And and you, you're building good technique. And they had to be able to run. And so that was the template we used. And that was how we found the Brownleys. So it was, and you know, and yeah. Will Clark and um, Alex Shee and all of those others, you know, um, Georgia Taylor-Brown and Jess Learmont. So, it's been a template that works because w- once you've got the aerobic engine and you've got the skill for swimming, you can teach people generally teach people how to ride a bike, you know, because they've got, yeah. they just, they just need to do the volume there and they've already, they've already got the engine. So you're in good hands. So I'm also pleased to learn that you haven't been bitten by the Ironman bug. It seems like these days people come into triathlon and they just, it, um, you know, it's like, it's like never having learned to read or write, but going straight to Cranfield and wanting to do that <laughs> stuff you've done, you know, um, just diving in at the deep end. Um, and it's, it's not the be all and end all, you know, in fact, um, doing the triathlon, doing triathlons at the shorter end is, is just as hard. You know, you, you look Absolutely. at the guys when they finish the world triathlon series event, whether it's a standard or a sprint and they're, they're on the floor. They've, yeah. you, know, you, you um, so yeah, it's just as tough and it's a lot easier to fit into your life to be quite frank yeah and that's and that plays a huge part in it because I want to do it and I love doing it and but it has to fit in with everything yeah. else that's going on yeah. and one funny thing we, we, we're talking about the bike there so I live now in Hong Kong as we as we mentioned and I live in a, a, a place called South Lantau which is beautiful it's like a it's like living in a in a country park but it's mountains and jungle and, and and whatever so now when i ride my bike you know everywhere's uphill you know where i am here literally everywhere's uphill but where i live in in the uk i live in suffolk where you know which is so flat you know you can watch your dog run away for three days there it's it's so flat where so i've had to adapt now from those lovely flat rides in suffolk to these uh everywhere's uphill rides here in hong kong which is a challenge in itself yeah, it feels like where I live, everywhere's uphill. At least when you yeah. when, you, when you set off, it is coming back's quite nice because you you get to roll downhill to the finish. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so let, let's let's start to talk about some of the things that you've discovered, some of the things that you work on with the pilots. Um, yeah. You know, we talked about sleep at the very big, beginning. There, we've touched on well-being and positive mental health. Again, I, I think a lot of these are marginalised these days i think i think actually we're getting we're getting to understand and think about mental health more particularly since the sort of the pandemic and sort of it's been at the forefront of people's minds but uh i think perhaps well-being and positive mental health let's let's talk about sleep first because it seems like if you're getting good sleep well-being and positive mental health are easy to get on top of and if you're not getting good sleep those things are more impactful so let's talk about sleep and how important that is in the in the world of the pilot and and the other um crew on on the on you know on the the um on the planes and yeah what in what steps you take to not just educate um the people at Cathay Pacific but also try to make sure that they're actually meeting some um basic thresholds yeah no it's and like we said we you know we mentioned how important this is so it's so important in our world you know that, that there's a whole legal framework around you know, the pilots, how much sleep they should have, when they can fly, 
how long, how many hours they can fly, what times of the day or night they can fly. You know, we we take things very seriously, and I know you you're interested in um, the sort of the, the theories around jet lag and and how that mm. how there are other things that cause those same issues. But we're also very interested in um, circadian rhythms. You know, so we 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 pay a lot of attention to what we call the wackle and the swackle. So the window of circadian low, which is you know between two and six in the morning, and the second window of circadian low, which is the same time in the afternoon. You know, pe- when when people start to naturally, their body starts to wind down a bit, and they start to naturally feel sleepy. So we have we have ways of dealing with those particular times of the day, as well as all the other things like hours that people work and and the amount of sleep they get. So it's such a huge thing to manage, uh, but it has to be managed well if we want to stop any impairment with with our pilots. Do you take into account whether people say that they're early birds or night owls? Because you you hear a lot of people saying that, but I, I, I saw something yesterday where somebody said, this whole thing about being a night owl was never as prevalent as it is now in the Netflix mm. era. And people turn themselves into night owls because they've got things to occupy them. Um, yeah. But I think, I think there is something to that, isn't there? That there are some people who naturally like to yeah. sleep in late and are more productive in the evening. And there, there are others who like to get up, you know, the 5am club and you see all those videos of those sort of Dave Goggins type characters that are up at 5am to embrace the day, and everything. Yeah. Definitely. And there is, and there's age plays a part in that as well. All the studies, the research shows that younger people tend to work, tend to perform better later in the day and older people often tend to perform earlier in the day. And the, one of the ways we, in normal times, you know, the COVID times is slightly different, but in normal times, one way we do that is allow the pilots to almost self-police that because they can, they can swap. You know, so if, if your roster comes out and you find out you're on, you've got, all these early mornings when actually that doesn't suit you find somebody they all know each other they find somebody and they they will swap you know as, and as long as everything's covered and people get the, the flying they're supposed to be getting then they almost self-police that because they know themselves you know who better to ask than the expert on themselves um so how do you deal with jet lag you long-haul pilots that are flying across several time zones i mean it's yeah. you, you can't avoid it can you so how do you manage it no, and it's you know, you, and and you talk to some of the pilots, and they they'll they may have been doing it for thirty years, and they'll still struggle with it. It's one of these things that that, that is difficult. But they what they do is they find coping strategies, and one common coping strategy that that they'll do is they'll stay on the time zone of Hong Kong, for example. So if so, if they're doing a a, a trip to the states, let's say. And then they might be flying around the States for a, a week or so while they're there. And then they'll fly back to Hong Kong. Mm. But all the time they're in the States, they'll actually stay on Hong Kong time. Wow. And that becomes quite difficult sometimes when you're trying to get food in the middle of the night. And it was mm. not, not as difficult as, as it used to be, I'm sure. But um, but they, they work that out. Now, you also have others who just say, right, well, you know what? I'm just going to really know that I'm going to suffer for a day or so. Uh, and then I'm going to be flying back to Hong Kong and then I'll be back on the same time zone or whatever. So they all come up with different strategies and different coping mechanisms. But for everybody, you know, there's a sort of rule of thumb which says for every time zone you cross, it's going to take you a day to to recover from that mm. time that you've lost. So for every hour, basically, you've got another day, you've got to take a day uh, to recover. And our pilots never are usually away for that long. So you know, if you think they go to the States, which might be you know, between eight and eight, eight to twelve hour time zone difference from here, 
they, they may only stay there for a couple of days and then they're back in Hong Kong. So for those two days, for them to stay on the local time on the Hong Kong time zone is a good coping strategy. I mean, we talk about jet lag, and I think most of the listeners have probably experienced that when they've and, and it always seems, and you, you you might be able to tell me how how much truth there is in this and explain why. Is if I fly from the UK to the West well to America, so I'm going back in time. I never feel as bad as if I come back from back to the UK yeah. from um, the US. So I'm traveling eastwards. Is, yeah. is that just my, is that just my no, circadian rhythm I mean, or is there, is there no, some science it? behind that? There is science behind it. And there's also some, yeah, they, they say West is best, East is least. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for, for, for whatever reason it is, um, the, the, we perform better or we cope better uh, when we travel travel in, in a westerly direction and we seem to to suffer more but it, it's more of a rule of thumb i think you know for, for for some people but but there is you know all the data says that most if in questionnaires most people will say that that is uh, the way it affects them is is that still the case if you fly from hong kong across to the west coast of america because you're actually going across the date line there aren't you and going backwards to a previous day and then you're coming back so are you really truly <laughs> traveling east or west then yeah, well, actually, we don't fly like that, though. We we go over the top, oh, okay. we go over the pole, uh, which is that means we can stay over land as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we very rarely would fly. Well, we don't, we wouldn't fly all the way around. We go over the top, so it almost defies the the logic. But, but you still end up you still end up further back in the day that, from which you yeah. set off, don't you? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Mm. So the, and the reason this is important is because jet lag is fairly obvious when you've been to, to New York and then you come back to London, for example, or you go from London and you fly out to somewhere like Dubai um, and it's, and it's a four hour times difference, but there's also this phenomenon called social jet lag. And so if somebody's up all night, uh, it could be something because you've had an emergency, family emergency, you've had to take, you know, go and visit an elderly parent, take a young one to the hospital because they've, they've come down with some sort of illness or hurt themselves. Um, you, you're studying for an exam or you're writing a report and you've got minimal sleep and then you have to be up early the next day. Um, you're losing sleep and, and they have the same rule of thumb there, don't they? That, that um, when you're losing sleep time, it's like having jet lag and it takes one day per every hour of sleep that you lose to get it back again. So that's why it takes you four days to feel normal after you've sort of been out with all your mates and not got back until 3 a.m and then you know not slept very well because you you know you've got you know you, you've got too much alcohol in your system yeah so what sort of what sort of tools have you used to help people get over jet lag or what sort of tools yeah. have you found work best to get over real jet lag or social jet lag yeah so on on the social side so when people are just tired and there's a difference between being tired and being fatigued you know, we all now occasionally get tired. Being fatigued is a, is, is a, is a different sort of psychological and physiological thing. Mm. But what we do to try and overcome these things is we have, um, well, napping. <laughs> we try and encourage our, our pilots to nap whenever they can. And we clearly on an aircraft, we have always, if they were doing long haul flying, there's always extra crew. So there's always extra pilots on board. So, you know, in, in the transit phase of the flight they will rotate 
and give each of them a, a chance to have a rest. You know, they'll go and have an hour's sleep or two hours sleep or however long the, the flight is. So we encourage that, you know, that, that, that somebody is always having the opportunity to sleep. Uh, and, and we also do these things called controlled rest where, you know, we've got apps and we've got uh, auto automation, which will allow the pilot to get just the right amount of sleep before they go too deep that it then causes them problems when they when they wake up so we have this thing called uh, sleep inertia and i'm sure we've all felt it when we we've, mm. we've gone into such a lovely deep sleep uh, and, and we wake up and, and then we feel groggy for you know another 45 minutes or so that's that sleep inertia uh, that that we get so what we do is we control that we try and control their naps so that they just get right the right amount of sleep and then they wake up and then they can very quickly perform again so i think i think that's about the is beta waves are when you're relaxed alpha waves are when you're starting to fall asleep aren't they and then delta waves are when you're really deeply asleep so i guess you don't want to get into the delta part of the sleep that's right yeah that's exactly it so and we call it we we call it the different stages so, so one two three four and then rapid eye movement sleep you know so so we're just trying to keep them in those those lower levels before mm. they go too deep and then wake them up and that's enough you know use so if, if you take 30 minutes and you have of, of almost and it is snoozing or napping rather than deep mm. sleeping. Actually, mm -hmm. you wake up really refreshed and, and 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 it makes a huge difference. I know a lot of the things like the aura ring, I've got my aura ring on now. You know, if, if I if I take a nap on an afternoon, if I'm on the weekend or whatever, you know, all of a sudden it says, right, your sleep score's improved and your readiness score's improved. And mm -hmm. because of your taken time to to actually just ha have a bit of a nap in the afternoon. So and so that's the reason why when you see naps recommended it's normally alongside the time of 20 to 30 minutes because any yeah. longer than that if you're sleeping that is when there's a tendency to drop into that deeper sleep pattern and you wake up feeling worse yeah exactly and you end up you know it can take you then like i say another 45 minutes or an hour yeah. to, to really get back back into the game but uh, and we don't want that clearly with, with um <laughs> yeah <laughs> People yeah, well, are, I mean, I've, yeah, yeah. Um, I've I've done adventure races over several days where you've had where we've just had to have power naps. You know, you can feel it, you can fall asleep on your mountain bike. And I saw yeah. one guy <laughs> broke his collarbone because he just rode he just rode straight on on this little corner into a ditch. Um, so yeah, you definitely don't want that. But I've noticed that twenty yeah. minutes, you, you feel so much better again. So, so yeah, and and for for all the for all the when you you listed all the things of the impairments that that mm. we get when we are, when we are fatigued well basically you're just in undoing some of that so all of a sudden you know your situational awareness improves you're less likely to make a mistake uh, your problem solving improves your communication skills improve your memory improves your concentration improves so all the things that are negative when you are fatigued just by taking this nap you're basically giving all those things a boost again mm. for the for the rest of the time that you're going to be trying to perform so again let's put that in the sporting world or in the triathlon world mm. you know people who are well rested uh i'm not saying take a nap halfway through a triathlon but you know people people who are well rested can see the you know all of those cognitive functions and some physiological functions you know hugely improved just because they've had a good night's sleep or, or they're into this good routine of, of sleep hygiene so i listened to craig alexander he was three-time world champion but he wasn't racing. Uh, he was doing some commentary. And one of the other commentators said, well, who's going to win today, Craig? And he said, well, there's probably about 10 or 15 guys who could who could win. But he said, it's probably going to come down to five of them. And he said, oh, so you've just eliminated 10 of them. He said, 
why was that? He said, poor decision-making, mostly. Um, you know, they'll be fatigued. They'll be dehydrated. They're in a pressure situation. And it's like like in the pro peloton as well in the cycling, you know, not go, not getting in the right break, um, not being attentive to notice when that break's going, you know, not being attentive enough to do something about it when it's going away um, or being too slow to make the decision. And then it's, you've already lost the moment. And then... I was reading a book. Um, if you've not read it, I'd highly recommend it. It's called Endure by Alex Hutchinson. And he looks at a lot of the research around sporting performances and about how um, the impact of, of the brain and brain function. And he, he cited this research where they had people doing a 90-minute task on a computer, which, it, which challenged them mentally. It was working out various things. And they'd already done a, they'd already done a cycle ride to fatigue in, on, on the gym bikes and then after this 90 minute computer um game if you like um they had them do this ride to exhaustion again and on average they were i think it was 15 percent um less duration so they were 15 percent worse in their time to fatigue and when they asked them some questions afterwards nearly all of them said they felt tired from the first pedal stroke now that's a 90 minute mental task of sitting down at a computer there's no yeah. physical activity involved other than using your fingers to type on the keyboard but mental fatigue impairs physical capacity as well which is what we Absolutely. mentioned earlier um but it makes me think about people who are traveling long way or doing lots of driving or maybe fill their pre-race week with work um, and then go to a race and can't understand why they underperform yeah yeah absolutely and again so you know the recovery side very quickly start to to realize how important you know rest and sleep but but and, and recovery is and that's all we're doing really when we're having a good night's sleep is we're recovering so um yeah and that's when you know as far as i'm concerned that's when the magic happens so the more we can do of it then you know the better for everybody so this decision making and problem solving we, we talked about risk management earlier and sort of yeah. increased risk taking when you're tired I mean, I guess that's disastrous in a plane, <laughs> plane yeah. flight situation, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, no, um, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, we we um, we do a lot of training with our pilots, clearly around human factors, and we one of the things that we look at with them is what we call non-technical skills. So they've they've got all these technical skills. You know, they can fly the aeroplane, they know how the engines work, they they know meteorology, and they know you know all the, some of the other science behind aviation. And we also though train them around these non-technical skills. So things like problem solving, things mm. like decision making, some things like teamwork, things like communication, things like situational awareness, because all of those things are key to their good performance. And all of those things, I think, would be key to any triathlete or any athlete's good performance. The ability to communicate well with your team. The ability to maintain situational awareness of what's going on around you and what's going to you know, happen next in the future. The ability to make good decisions, the ability to manage risk well and have a good understanding of risk uh, and, the, and the ability to solve problems, even if that problem is, you know, forgetting your wheel, as you mentioned earlier, when you turn up at a race. You know, that's, that's a problem that's going to have to be solved if you want to then continue uh, and, and race. So um, I think we sometimes take these things for granted. Um, but actually, the more we think about them and the more we consider them, uh, the better we can we uh, we can become at doing those things. 
there's a phrase that's often used that the worst person to ask if they're drunk is the drunk, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. So what do you do to teach people how to recognize that their function, their executive function, their decision-making function is impaired? You know, is, yeah. And is that something we can learn individually or is that where the team comes into effect and actually it's somebody else who's going to recognize that? Or do you just have a cutout before that occurs? You know, it's just like, regardless of where you're at, this is you're going to take a rest here after two hours of flight. Yeah, yeah so a bit, a bit of everything there. So the we learn and we teach a lot about personality and behavior. So we teach people about different personality types mm -hmm. and how they might react under certain conditions, you know, under certain circumstances, how they might react when they're stressed, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and how then also people might behave under those conditions. Now, you might not notice that behavior in yourself, but you're never flying on your own. You know, you're always part of the crew. So one of the other crew members uh, may well see behavior that isn't, isn't you as you would normally behave. Or it, you, you, know, you may be displaying signs of fatigue. You may be displaying signs of, of stress. And therefore, the other crew member would speak up you know, and be assertive and, and, and take control of that situation. So we rely very heavily on, on teamwork mm -hmm. and communication uh, as part of this overall safety. Mm. But as we know, though, powerful characters often say, no, I'm not tired. So yeah. how do, how do you well, enforce that then? Do you, uh, you know? Um, I... Yeah. It's, again, so uh, the personality thing plays a big part. So part of one of these, one, part of the driver for the non-technical skills training that our pilots do was uh, the Tenerife accident that happened back in the 70s when you had two aircraft sadly collide. Uh, you know, one took off over the top of another and, and hundreds of people were killed. And it was a KLM aircraft and the United uh, aircraft. And they made a real point of, of, of focusing on the captain of the KLM aircraft. He was the KLM golden child. He was the top pilot, the top trainer, the top everything. You know, he was their, their poster boy. And nobody would ever question him or nobody would ever ever speak up against him or any you know so there was this in those days in those early days you know you did have these really dominant personalities and this real hierarchy where the captain is is absolute and everybody else you know speaks when they're spoken to it's not like that anymore you know we would never in a in a million years recruit or or accept you know people who with that kind of personality now what we do recruit and accept is people who are team players, people who are good communicators, people who are assertive. And when I say assertive, I mean it's not just getting their voice heard, but you know, truly assertive people are good listeners. You know, they're the people who will actually listen as well when somebody's uh, trying to get their point across. So we've we've almost switched from this this real hierarchy. Uh, you know, the captain's clearly always is still in charge. He's always in charge, and he's he's responsible for that aircraft. But the, the gradient between the captain and the rest of the crew is not so steep now that, that the crew wouldn't be afraid to speak up or the crew wouldn't be afraid to, uh, to, to speak out if they saw that something was wrong. So even if, so if the captain wasn't performing how they expect him to perform or if there was anything about his performance that, that was unusual, then the crew member would speak up. Mm. Interesting. Let, let's talk about well-being then and positive mental mm. health. So. Yeah. Um, I remember talking to Jody Swallow 
a few years ago. It was a long time ago now. It was 2012. We talked um, just before the London Olympics and I was asking her who she thought was going to win the women's race. And she gave me five names. And I said, what makes you so confident about those? And she said, well, I know all those girls personally. I've trained with them. I've raced with them for years. They're all, they all have happy, balanced relationships. They're very content in their lives. And, you know, so they're in a good place mentally. And um, I don't think anybody really talks about that too much, about how being in a good place mentally has a huge impact, positive or negative, on on human performance. So yeah. it's, I guess, that's, again, that's crucial. I guess that, that guy who flew that plane into the Alps um, probably wasn't in the best mental health at the time. No, no, absolutely. Um, again, when I, I mentioned earlier about, you know, looking for the positives with, with regard to the human contribution, mm. you know, this is another one of those things where the positive really does make a difference. So um, I remember reading a quote from Desmond Tutu, of all people, mm-hmm. um, and he, he said that he said, uh, there comes a point when we need to stop just pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. <laughs> and yeah. for me, that just makes so much sense. Why do we wait for people to fall over? Why do we wait for people to have problems? Why do we wait for people to to become ill why don't we put everything in place up front and actually try and be preventative uh, you know and, and stop these things occurring and again there's 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 definitely some read across there again to training i suppose and for the triathlon you know if we try and if we look after ourselves and if we don't overdo things and if we manage our sleep and if we uh, manage our relationships as best we can you know and, and all of these things then it's going to improve our performance. We know it's going to improve our performance. Um, I also, following on from the, the sort of quote there from, from Desmond Tutu, um, looked at some work from a guy called Seligman, Martin Seligman, and he's, he's almost the father of positive psychology. And he created this thing called the PERMA model, which is something that we teach again, teach our teach our crews and to, to have awareness of. And PERMA stands for positive emotion so the p in perma is is you know positive emotion and how important it is that we're able to feel good hopeful and and inspired by the things we do e stands for engagement so this is and this is a really important one actually for i i know i've listened to some of your fabulous podcasts where you've had people on talking about mindfulness in fact last the one just we just listened to mm-hmm. um, and and this engagement that seligman talked about really includes mindfulness as well because it's all about sometimes getting into the flow, you know, becoming so engaged that you are just in the flow with that thing that you're doing. And for me, that's a kind of mindfulness. You know, anytime I'm doing something and I'm almost in that, in that headspace, it, it's just fabulous. You know, you are, you're in the here and now, you're grounded. So this is what Seligman refers to as, as engagement, and, and that's really important. Then the R in the PERMA model is relationships. So he talks about how, how the importance of relationships being crucial to well-being and happiness. Now, relationships are relationships like our team as well. You know, you know, for to, to have a something that you're um, part of. You know, it doesn't have to be family members. It doesn't have to be partners. You know, it just has to be a relationship. So, so, but relationships are are really really important when it comes to well-being. And then the the, the last two bits he talks about in the perm model. So the M is meaning. So building a sense of purpose, uh, and it's even better if that purpose then contributes to the wider community, uh, et cetera. Uh, and then the final one is achievement. 
and again, so for us for triathletes, um, this plays a huge part. Maybe why some people you know do the sport in the first place. But it's not just about a sense of winning; it's about challenging yourself. It's about mm. the individual bit, you know, in achieving something, uh, and it it basically. It's a way of developing our own strengths and our own skills in a practical way. So this PERMA model is something that we we work with with our pilots. And we say, and what we're saying really, you know, is good mental health and well-being is not the absence of illness, it's the it's the presence of wellness. You know, and, and if we look at this PERMA model, it helps us con- you know, think about the presence of wellness. I love what you just said there. I- I think I'm sure I've heard of that before, but I'm going to go and look at that in in more detail now, because as you mentioned um, about the previous podcast with um, Dr. Caroline Hoffman from last week, or from a couple of weeks ago when this comes out, she talks about mindfulness, mindfulness and meditation. And somebody said to me, I was surprised. I thought you'd got her on to talk about meditation, but she didn't really talk about that. She talked about how she'd, she'd moved on to mindful practice because that felt like it was more practical to her and um, in her life and her work and i think probably a lot of people if if you can work out how to be more mindful and practice mindfulness throughout your day um would find that just gets them in a calm state all of the time rather than just the time when you're doing your meditation um but but mindfulness is is definitely um definitely absent from a lot of people these days and she came up with a fantastic quote from james joyce from his book that mr duffy lived a few feet from his head oh no mr mr duffy existed a few feet from his body and you know that's just when you think about that it's like somebody who's just not really attached to the head they're over there they're away with the fairies or whatever you like to say um, and you walk down any high street and you can see people just they're just not engaged in what's going on around them yeah. Um, oh, Hong uh, Kong. Hong Kong takes that to a whole new level. Oh. You walk around Hong Kong, and uh, you're constantly zigging and zagging to try and <laughs> avoid all the people who've got their head down. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's the same when I ride my bike along the towpath. You know, the runners with the big. You can see them. You can see the ones that you need to look out for because they've got the big headphones on. The worst yeah. ones are the ones with the little headphones because you can't really tell. And you're ringing your bell, and there's no response. You're <laughs> ringing the bell, and they're still in the middle of the towpath. Then you tap them on the shoulder, and they have a heart attack because they they yeah. didn't hear you coming. Um, you talked about meaning. Um. Again, as part of my studies, I was reading about Ikigai, which is this uh, Japanese um, uh, philosophy of purpose and meaning. And they talk about these blue zones, these areas of um, where there's a large number of the population that live to be more than 100. And there's one in Okinawa, I think, in Japan. And when they look at the people there, they they often have purpose. So the, old, the older members of that community are still active in doing stuff. They're maybe not running 20 miles a week and going swimming every day, but they're still potting around. They're still moving. They're still involved in the allotment. They're still mentoring the young people. So they're involved. They're not, and I do think that's a crying shame about what we do in the West is we parcel off our old people to a nursing home so we can forget about them and get on with their yeah. own lives. But actually they can be, they, they can contribute far more if they're involved in society. And you see it with, certainly with Asian families that live around here, you know, the whole family lives together. And, and so it's a much yeah. more cohesive unit. Um, th- they also did a study on uh, a nursing home where they gave half of the people some little pot plants to look after, and they just had to water them every day and nurture them. And the other group didn't yeah. get these. And when they talked to them um, afterwards and, and got some feedback, um, they were so much happier in their lives because they now had a purpose of looking after 
this pot plant. Yeah. Right. And you uh, often so, hear, don't you? You hear about people saying, um, "Oh, I don't know what I'd do if I didn't have something to get up for in the morning." Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and I I can I can get that. You know, I I love getting up in the morning. I love going to work. I love my job. I love Hong Kong. And maybe I'm just a, a positive person. I don't know. I don't think so because you know, like anybody, I have my down days too. But on the whole, I you know, my purpose. I hope is to look after our pilots who then, you know, fly safely around the world and, and look after look after everybody else. So, you know, that gets me out of bed in the morning and, and certainly gives me a purpose to, to go to work. So well, I mean, there is there is plenty of data looking at people who've retired and and don't have a purpose of getting up in the morning and and you know, don't live very long after they've retired because they're out of that yeah. little work community they've had for years. They don't have to get up to go to work and they, they're sort of lost. And I guess also, you, you know, you talked about your daughter and that sort of stuff there. That's also a purpose for you is to make people yeah. more aware of that, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, that, and again, you know, any opportunity I can, then, then you know, cardiac risk of the young is always to the fore and, and, and we try and get the word across. And, and you, the, the A part of that PERMA, model which is the challenge is it's i think a lot of the time i see athletes focused on the outcome on being faster on on going longer you know but but actually what when people really dig deeply into it what they get the most satisfaction on is the mastery of that process is the journey you know you look back and you think well okay actually can i remember crossing the line i was in a world of pain there but i can remember all the fun Mm. we had doing those long bike rides i remember when we went on that training camp you know, there's an awful lot that happens on the journey. And if you're mindful about that whole journey, everything has way more meaning and satisfaction, doesn't it? Than if you, if, if everything goes by in a blur and you're only focused on crossing the finish line and getting your medal. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the achievement, isn't it? About, you know, challenging yourself and, and the, the positivity that comes from that, like you say, rather than the outcome of, of crossing the line first or, mm. or in, in a, particular time or whatever now i know that's that's important clearly you know especially if you're a professional athlete you know those things are very very important but you know certainly for i would say the majority of us you know who just love the sport of triathlon you know I, the only person i'm going out against is myself and, mm-hmm. and every time i maybe do something a little better or i feel a bit better or i've had a nicer ride or even as if i've had something you know i've witnessed something out of my ride that has just made my day you know, I've achieved something as far as mm. I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, that mindfulness about being present um, yeah. makes a whole lot of difference, doesn't it? I think. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and, and getting 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 happiness from other things as well that you see. So I, I see, you know, I was at a race at the weekend. I saw a lot of people posting that they'd been helped by certain people. You know, somebody's chain had come off and in their sort of race head, they just couldn't get it unstuck and somebody else stopped, got off his bike help them somebody else got cramp and, and somebody helped them and they were saying you know I, I, i'm not bothered about myself i just wanted to say thank you to this person that really helped me and mm. really made me smile and gave me a different feeling about humanity that somebody was willing to sort of sacrifice their race to help me yeah 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 well, we had a we had a, a typhoon here this week actually and it was it wasn't a big one but it was you know enough to shut the transport system down etc um and it lasted probably a 12, over 12 hours. On, on hour 13, when you know the winds calmed down quite a bit and the rain wasn't quite as heavy, I just went, I thought, you know what, I'm going to go for an hour's run. I, you know, I had a run to do as part of my training program that day, and I'll go and do my hour's run now because I, I couldn't do it uh, earlier on. 
And just this sense of, of being able to go out, you know, again, in such a, in such a fabulous place. You know, the weather, it, when, you, when a typhoon just finishes, everything changes. You know, the, the air quality changes, the, the air pressure changes, the atmosphere changes. And you just got this almost mm-hmm. perfect sense of, of being alive. Mm-hmm. Just by being in the environment that you're, that you're out, so I was able to go and have an hour's and, and run, you know, under those conditions. You know, you came back and you think, this is this 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 is great. You know, this is just this is what life's all about. You know, I, I'm able, I'm physically able to go and do this. You know, I live in a in, in a beautiful place where doing this is, is such a big deal. Mm. But it's just the the fact that it's positive. You know, it, this is this positive psychology. Now I know we can't always be, you know smiley and we can't always be 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 bouncy and be happy and we would never expect that we'd get very we think people are very odd if they were like that but actually that's how i think we should be when we're doing something we love and if we you know for me i love doing my triathlon training so i run and smile i cycle and smile i i try well i hold my breath when i'm when i'm uh, swimming and i smile in between but you know, it's it's all about you know. Let's make the best of it, rather than you know. None of this should be be anything that that is a chore, is what I'm saying. Well, that reminds me of a quote that I had from a, another client that I work with who was doing Ironman France. So that takes place in Nice. Gets quite hot there. It's in a beautiful part of the world. The bike ride can be particularly challenging in the midsection because you're in the Alp Maritime, so it's tough climbing technical descents precarious at times and he was he was understandably concerned about this race like a lot of people are before um before doing an Ironman but he said you know what I've changed one letter because I found myself saying to people oh I've got to do this run or I've got to do this training or I've got this race coming up or I've got to do this Ironman he said I just changed the O for the E and he said yeah. now I get I get to go out for a run like it's an honor yeah. like yeah. I get to do this race it's a privilege and he said that that gave me such a different outlook on life that we get to do stuff. It's a choice rather than a chore. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and that and that's that. You know, it's amazing how just as uh, the neuro linguistic program, as the NLP people would tell us about this choice of words and language, but it is amazing how just switching one letter out changes a word and changes the whole emphasis and and your whole mindset. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And it and it's huge. You know, they, the, the the effect on performance and again this is why we do this with our pilots you know the effect on performance of positive psychology and positivity is massive is huge so Pete, as we wrap up here from all the stuff that we've talked about today from all the lessons that you've learned from all the situations that you've observed personally and um, professionally if you were going to leave our listeners with a few gems of advice um what would they be hopefully i'm not putting you too much on the spot there but no well i think you know i think understanding and i mentioned these earlier these non-technical non-technical skills so understanding the importance of these non-technical skills so understanding how important it is to communicate effectively understanding how important it is to be a team player uh, and work with people uh, who you're uh, operating with, and maybe this just this whole understanding of if we look after ourselves and we take good care of our well-being and and our mental health, then we are going to definitely perform 
at a higher level. Uh, and I know that seems to just be, you know, stating the obvious, but for some people, you know, they, they forget about it and they, they don't get enough sleep and they constantly on the go and they never recover. And they, and, and then they, they like say, you know, they do that all week and then wonder why they're, they're not in a great place when they start the, the, the race at the weekend. Think about that in life. You know, think that we are, you know, we're human beings. We do need time to recover. We do need time to rest. Uh, we do need time to recuperate. And if we do that and make time for it, then when it comes to the times that we want to perform, we will certainly perform to a higher level. So just those two? I mean, they're fairly yeah, comprehensive. I think, <laughs> yeah, I think so. Without getting into any of the, the, the sort of real technical stuff, I think that's, they're, they're just some, some really good things that I've certainly learned uh, in order to, to help other people perform, but also to help perform myself. And uh, I suppose it goes without saying that you practice what you preach. Yeah, I do. I absolutely do try to as best I can. You know, there are times when, you know, I, I, I have to work in the middle of the night or I have to do you know, other things that we all have to do as part of our, our daily lives. But I try as best as I can to, to keep to a good routine. I try and get to bed at a reasonable time. I try to get, you know, between sort of seven and nine hours sleep every night. I try to take some time for mindfulness. I try to do some strength training, you know, every day. So, yeah. And it's interesting you say that because, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, but it's probably only in the last five or six years that I've learned to really turn it back on myself. I've always, Mm. you know, helped or tried to help other people, Uh, but it's really only in the last five or six years that I've tried to turn it back on myself, I think, and and realise how important it is for me too. Do you think that's an age thing? Do you you think it's a realisation that if we want to carry on with what we're doing, for longer in life we actually do need to turn it back on ourselves because you, you you know when you when you're in your 20s or 30s you can run away from less sleep you can run away from a poor diet you can run away from not looking after yourself can't you but we don't we you and i and everybody else that's in our age category we don't, we don't sort of have that luxury anymore no that's right and and also again that's why, another reason why i love triathlon so much because by just by mixing up the training by by looking after yourself on one hand, but also then mixing up the training, you know, so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, run one day, swim one day, cycle the next day. Actually, I'm hoping I can still be doing this in another, you know, 10 or 15 years. Um, th- that's my dream. So that's another good reason to turn it in on myself and, and try and practice what I preach. Brilliant. Well, and of course, you know, also recognizing when you're sort of drifting off that sort of sweet spot that you're in, recognizing that you haven't had enough sleep, knowing the signs to look for, you know, I know personally if i if i haven't slept enough i get a bit irritable and i can always tell when i've perhaps if i've been commentating a race and i've been sleeping in the hotel and getting up early i come back and i'm picking up cookies and chocolate rather than you know the salmon and the avocado um there's little behavioral patterns that i can sense i'm falling into which means i need to get correct everything yeah absolutely yeah and you mentioned that decision making that's one of the first thing that goes when uh, when we become impaired and and being fatigued is being impaired you know our ability mm. to make good decisions and rational thought uh, are one of the first things we that we lose well pete i'm i'm so glad you reached out to me thank you thank you very much it's been really really educational today um learning how how all of these things fit together you know i've talked about it a lot we've had lots of guests on um but sometimes you need a bit of you need a bit of stitching to sort of bring all these together, don't you? And um, that's definitely helped here. Well, thank you very much. And like I said at the beginning, you know, I'm a huge fan of the podcast and, and really you know, chuffed to bits to be on the team. So I, I look forward to meeting everybody as, as we go forward as well. Yeah, great. Pete McCarthy, thanks for being here. Thank you very much. 
Thank you to Pete for being a guest on this week's High Performance Human podcast. As usual, you can find links to all of today's discussion topics in the show notes below. To make sure you don't miss any episode in the future, please go to iTunes, search for High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast and press subscribe. Also, don't forget to look out for that link in the show notes so that you can download your free case study if you want to find out about the simple formula I use to help athletes like you excel at their first long distance triathlon. Okay, that's all for now. Have a great week and I will see you on the next episode.